Now, as we're today, we're going to look at um, we're going to look at chapter two in uh, the book of Revelation. Uh, we're probably only going to get to one church today, the church to Ephesus. But this is the section uh, of Revelation that deals with the the letters to the seven churches. Uh, these this is Jesus's words to these seven churches in Asia Minor. Um, we probably need to make a few points about these letters before we before we actually dive into them. Uh, most people view these letters as, uh, you know, just introductory stuff before we get to the real meat, the real drama of Revelation, the visionary portions that are so um, that are so out there, you know, that that people want to hear about. Um, that's a huge mistake when when interpreting the book of Revelation. Uh, the context, the settings, and the the character of these churches is it is the background behind all of the rest of the book. Uh, John's vision, uh, which was given to him by Jesus, we saw that chapter one last week. It's it's intended to speak to these seven churches specifically about the the circumstances, the trials, the tribulations they're enduring. Uh, it's intended for them to hear understand and obey in the midst of all that's going on all that they are enduring and all that they are about to endure now before you get way off to the left uh, remember it, of course this rip the book of revelation is god's word and so it's god's word for every generation it has meaning and application in our own day uh, and we're going to see that as we walk through these letters to the to the churches and in the visions that follow um and you know, we're, we're even going to see that there's parts of Revelation that deal with the culmination of, of history. But these seven letters to seven churches, chapter 2 and chapter 3 in Revelation, they provide a window into the, the intention of the visions that are to come. Uh, don't skip over the letters and don't gloss over them uh, as if they're somehow disconnected from the rest of the book. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, we've already seen that these letters uh, are, are written to seven real churches in in first century Asia Minor. Um, but you also need to remember that these seven letters that we're going to read, um, they're placed here in the book of, of Revelation, and they are meant to be they're meant to be read in in all the churches. What I mean by this is um, the church at uh, the church at Smyrna, for example. Uh, they they received the copy of the, the book of, of Revelation that was sent to them. It's addressed to them from the Apostle John. They received the entire book. They received chapters one through, you know, there weren't chapter divisions then, but, you know, they received the whole book, which means uh, when the book was read aloud in the church, as it was meant to be, it was meant to be read aloud, uh, they, the church at Smyrna, would also hear Jesus' words to the other six churches uh, as well. So don't chop the book up. It's one book. It's one book of Revelation, and and uh, in one sense, each letter that we're going to read is addressed to each specific church, uh, addressing the real situations and concerns in that congregation. Uh, and in another sense, each of these letters are meant for the whole church to take instruction from uh, the the one of the churches that the this letter would be read in they would hear the, the Jesus's words to the other church as well it's a single it's a single book and we can't chop it up into into sections um, when we look at the when we look at the letters 
we're probably going to see elements in each church that correspond to realities in the churches where we worship today and serve today. And, and I think that's what John meant for us to do. Uh, we're also going to notice that in each one of the letters, we're, we're going to find a phrase, uh, and the phrase is, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In each letter, John intends for those with an ear, meaning those who have been regenerated, those that are born again, those that are uh, ready to hear and obey what the Spirit says, to hear and, and keep, obey what the Spirit is speaking to the churches, to all the churches. And so we can't, we can't divorce this, these, uh, these letters away from, you know, away from uh, the rest of the book of Revelation. Uh, if you were to, let's just take, for example, if you were to cut away uh, chapters 2 and chapter 3 in Revelation and just go straight from John, island of Patmos, sees the vision of Christ, Christ reveals himself as who he is, and then go right into the vision of uh, of chapter 4, where we see the, the heavenly throne room of God. If you were to do that, and that's what so many people, they, they wouldn't say that that's what they're doing, but they want to just hurry up and get past those letters to the churches so we can get to the really interesting stuff. You know, if you were to do that, you're going to miss, you're going to miss the, the historical context and setting of what those visions are trying to speak to these churches. You can't, you can't do that. You have to you have to understand who this letter was written to. It was written to seven churches in Asia Minor, but it was written for the whole church in every generation. It's just like every other letter, God's word. Paul sent this letter to the Romans. It was written to them, but it was written for us and for our instruction. That's one thing we need to make sure we get when we when we start reading these letters to the churches. The the other thing that we need to know before we look at these letters is that each of the seven letters is going to be structured in relatively the same way. And this is something that we're going to see uh, throughout Revelation. It's something that Revelation does constantly throughout the book. And we're going to have to take notice of it uh, because there, there's meaning behind it and it helps us interpret the book. We have to take notice of the structure of the book and its contents as well as, you know, what is actually being said in it. Uh, we're going to see it over and over and again. You know, later in the book, we'll have, you know, the six seals open, and then you're going to have an interlude, a brief pause. Uh, the six six seals are open in chapter six, then chapter seven is a pause, and then there's events going on in chapter seven, and then in chapter eight, verse one, the seventh seals open, and you're going to see that same structure in the trumpets and the bowls. Six, six are going to be open there's a pause and then the seventh is open so there's there's meaning to that structure as well and uh, the letters uh, are structured together as this like this as well there are some elements in a few of these letters that we're going to see that have caused a lot of debate that have caused a lot of people to <clears throat> hold to doctrines that are not necessarily scriptural scripturally sound but when we 
But when we're, we're going to see as we go through them that if you pay attention to how each letter is structured, they're all structured the same way. The debate about these these uh, particular verses, uh, it resolves itself. I mean, it's just it's self-explanatory. Uh, I don't want to give too much away right on the front end, but uh, but you'll definitely see what I mean. So as far as the structure of the letters, each letter that we have, it's going to be the seven churches, you know, Ephesus and Smyrna and Philadelphia and Sardis and Laodicea. Each letter is going to begin with a recognition of the audience. You know, it's going to say to the angel of the church of, you know, whatever church. And each one's going to begin that way. And then each one uh, is going to have an introduction where Jesus introduces himself to the church. Um, they already know who Jesus Jesus is, but he's going to he's going to say to the to the angel of the church at Ephesus from the one who has the seven stars in his hand. And and he's going to introduce himself and each introduction that Jesus gives is going to be different. We're going to see that in every letter. But it's really fascinating for for each of the different churches. Jesus is going to use one of the descriptions of himself that we saw in chapter one as a way of of introduction. And the way that he introduces himself in these letters is going to be directly relevant to the situation that the church is going through. Uh, for example, let me just give you a quick example. We're going to talk about the church at Ephesus today, uh, and we'll probably, uh, after that, we'll probably, uh, I'm going to try to shorten these lessons a little, so we'll probably just get to that one today, and then we'll we'll do the others uh, next time. But the church at Ephesus, Jesus introduces himself as the one who walks among the lampstands and holds the seven stars in his in his right hand. That's the exact thing that John saw in the first chapter. One like a son of man who is walking among the lampstands. It's the exact same phrase. And this is relevant to the church at Ephesus because he is the judge, the king, and the priest of the church. We saw that in chapter one. If you uh, uh, need uh, explanation about why that that means that you can go back and listen to that but he is head over the churches and he attends to them so when he brings uh correction to the church at ephesus and commendation to them that he alone is the one that has the right to remove their lampstand if they don't repent that's what he's going to warn them with so what we're going to see in these letters uh, to the churches and we're going to see this in every single one jesus is going to he's going to identify who the letters to to the angel of the church of whatever and then he's going to introduce himself using one of the phrases or, or one or two of the phrases that we saw in chapter one of the vision that john saw he's going to introduce himself as you know the the one who holds the seven stars or the one who has the sword, uh, that kind of thing. We're going to see that as we go through the letters. But each one of those descriptions is going to be relevant to what the church is facing, what the church is going through. So you got in the structure of the letters, you have the address, who it's to, the you know you have the introduction Jesus giving him a picture of himself from the first vision then in every letter Jesus will give a commendation or he will give a rebuke to the church and in some cases he'll give both he'll say you're doing this right uh, you're doing this wrong uh, Smyrna and Philadelphia are churches that that have nothing but commendation they're doing well they're doing everything right Jesus holds nothing against them they are encouraged simply just to hold fast through the the persecution and trial. Laodicea and Sardis are two churches that have nothing good 
going for them. There's nothing but rebuke for them. And, uh, you know, although Sardis is said to have some in it who have not defiled themselves, and we'll look at that as we get there, um, they're chastised for many different things. Uh, the uh, But there's no, uh, they're given no commendation, really. Uh, the letters to Pergamum, Thyatira, and Ephesus, the one that we're going to look at today, they have both good and bad in them. They're encouraged to, you know, do the good works. They're warned to repent from the evil that's in them. So in every church, we're going to have the audience given, the church to the church, to the angel of the church or whatever. You're going to have the introduction that Jesus gives. You know, I am the one who whatever, and he's going to use a phrase from the first chapter that we've already seen. And then he's going to give a section of of commendation or rebuke to the church each each letter uh then is going to have these these elements and then after that uh, each letter is going to contain an exhortation for the one who has an ear to let him hear what's being said to the churches and then finally each letter is going to end with the promise of eternal life for those who overcome for those who overcome or those who conquer the word is nikao the the one who conquers to him i'm going to give eternal life and we're going to talk about what it means to overcome and conquer in the text as we come to them but uh, each promise that he gives of eternal life at the end of each of these letters is going to also be phrased differently using pictures from the old testament in this particular one we're going to look at today he says the one who overcomes i will grant him to eat from the tree of life you know and the there's going to be one where he says i'm the one who overcomes i'm going to clothe him in white robes and, and so we're going to see a different way of phrasing it, but each section really means uh, I'm going to give him eternal life. I'm going to give him salvation. I'm going to give him blessing and you know honor being in the presence of God. Those kind of things. Uh, but what what's important? It's important that you that you understand the structure of the letters because they're all structured the same way. Uh, and we're going to run across a few statements in these letters that have, uh, like I said, sparked some very serious debate. But if you understand the structure of the letter that John's, uh, you know, phrasing and rephrasing the promises of eternal life, the debate pretty much resolves itself. And the meaning of the text is is just plain. Uh, and you're going to see this as we go through them. And, you know, you're probably you probably be happy to know that uh, in the chapter two and chapter three, there are going to be some Old Testament texts that we're going to have to look at, but there's not going to be near as many as we saw in chapter one. So uh, hopefully it'll take less time. Uh, we're probably just after today, we're probably just going to take two churches at a time. Like today, I I'm only going to have time to do Ephesus because I'm doing this introduction to the letters. Um, the next three three lessons will be uh, I'll take two churches in each lesson because I really want you to understand what's going on in these churches. And it's going to help you to uh, interpret the visions and understand the context and the meaning of what's being said later on. Um, you know, we don't get bogged down. The last one was like, you know, I don't know, it was like an hour and five minutes or something like that. I'm going to try to shorten these down so they're, they're more consumable for you. Uh, so let's uh, let's go ahead and look at Ephesus, the first church. Ephesus was. Um, 
Ephesus was it was an economic and cultural center of of Asia Minor. That's Asia Minor's modern day Turkey. That's where it's at. Uh, it was a port city. It was on the west uh, the west coast of uh, of Asia Minor, uh, and it was the site of. Um, there were some of the the most grand temples in the first century there. In fact, uh, Ephesus was renowned for the temple of Artemis, which is Artemis is also known as Diana, the god goddess Diana or Artemis. And that temple, the temple of Artemis, that was one of the seven wonders of the world of the ancient world. And so it was renowned for its uh, its temples and, and the the religious, cultural, economic things that was going on there. The worship of gods like uh or goddesses and gods like artemis um it, it provided a great deal of commerce in, in in ephesus so uh it was very important not just for the religious context of the city but also for the economy of the city if you need an example of that you can see uh on paul's uh, third missionary journey in acts chapter 19 a riot broke out in in ephesus uh, because uh, Demetrius the silversmith uh, incited a riot because uh, you know Paul and Silas were were uh, were teaching that you know Jesus is the way they were preaching the gospel and these Demetrius the silversmith who made these little little silver idols of, of Diana uh, of Artemis uh, that's how he made his money and so he was uh, they were he, he said they were attempting to dishonor Artemis and endanger their business and uh, of selling these silver statues and you can read that in acts chapter 19 demetrius inside cited this riot and it was a huge riot in the city and and the people were yelling hail artemis and you know uh, the the glory of ephesus and all that kind of stuff so you can see that they had this pagan this pagan culture this uh, false god worship these temples going on in Ephesus, but in addition to the worship of the pagan gods, and incidentally, this is going to be true in all the cities uh, to a lesser or to a greater degree. In addition to the worship of these pagan gods like Artemis, uh, Ephesus also had its fair share of temples to the Roman emperors. Uh, we're going to see this cropping up over and over again in Revelation, and it's very important for you to understand this. Um, by this time, I think that even as back as far as Julius Caesar, just the, the first emperor, uh, definitely Augustus Caesar, the second. But even back that far, the Roman emperors increasingly demanded to be worshipped as gods. And, and they had temples erected to them to fil- facilitate worship, you know. And so we, we already see this going on in the church, not in the church, but in the city of, of Ephesus, the the church in Ephesus had to contend not only with the pagan gods and the people in the pressure of the uh, of uh, being part of that social structure, that that uh, economic structure of those pagan temples and those things going on. But they also had pressure to worship the Caesars as part of the Roman political society. And so. What we're going to see, what we're going to see is that um, uh, Christians were were repeatedly being backed into a corner. They were being backed into a corner socially. They were being backed into a corner economically, and they were they were being backed into a a corner uh, in, in just about every area of life. Because in order to uh, in order to make a living, there were there were little trade guilds. We'll see this a little more in one of the other cities, but there were little trade guilds. 
kids that had their own little god. You know, if you're a woodworker, you had to sacrifice to the, you know, they'd gather and have a festival and sacrifice to the woodworking god or the silversmith god or the metalworking god or what, whoever it was. And you were, you were part of that group. You were called to do that as well. And to not do that was, was to be ostracized from that group. You wouldn't get the work that others would. And more importantly than that, the Caesars demanded worship. Now, here's the thing that you need to understand. First century, they didn't demand that you stop worshiping Jesus. That was not the thing. These people were very uh, diverse with their gods. There were gods for everything. And so they didn't demand, hey, you stop worshiping Jesus and you start worshiping the emperor. All they wanted, they were they were fine with you worshiping Jesus. If you want to worship Jesus, you just go right ahead. All we want you to do is add Caesar into your worship. That's all you have to do. Just add Caesar into your worship. Everything will be fine. It'll all be good. And so they they had to uh, they had to um, to deal with this pressure uh, to fa- a failure to worship Caesar caused all kind of problems and it caused some severe persecution as well. There's a, a historical uh, account of uh, of Roman soldiers that would walk around with these uh, uh, little altars that they would carry around the city, and on the altar would be a little a little uh, uh, a bust or a, a likeness of the Caesar. And on the altar would be a bowl of uh, of burning coals, a bowl of fire, and a, a bowl of incense. And each each person under the you know the subject of Rome would have to come and take a little little pinch of incense, throw it into the fire, and say Caesar is Lord. Well, the Christians couldn't do that. They weren't asking the people to give up their gods. They were asking just to add Caesar into that worship. It's called the emperor cult, and it was very prevalent during during this time in Asia Minor. And so uh, we're going to see they had pressure from the pagan deities. They had pressure from the uh, uh, military authority uh, to worship the Caesar. Uh, and there was also there was also a large Jewish community in Ephesus. And in all of Asia Minor. And, uh, you know, remember that when Paul went out on his journeys to new areas and uh, spreading the gospel, he always started his mission in a city in the local synagogue where the Jews met. That's where he always went first. He preached the gospel there first, and then he went out if they rejected it or some accepted it or whatever. And what we're going to see is that uh, in Acts, if you just read through the book of Acts, the number one persecutors of the Christians were not the Romans at the beginning. It was the Jews. You see, the Jews enjoyed, I'm probably giving way too much away right here at the beginning, but the Jews enjoyed a special status among the Romans. They were not forced to worship other gods or to break their their traditions or to break their customs or anything like that. Everybody else, all the other people that Rome conquered, uh, they would... Uh, they would uh, they would allow them to worship their gods, but they also had to worship Caesar and, and all these other things. But the Jews enjoyed a particular status that uh, they were exempt from these things, and so it was a, it was a really good thing that, for the most part, in Rome's eyes anyway, the Christians were really just a sect of the Jews, and so as long as they were connected with the Jews. 
Rome saw them as a Jewish Jewish sect, and so they kind of enjoyed the same the same freedoms that the Jews did. But increasingly, you see that the Jews begin persecuting the Christians, and the more that they the more that they uh, separated themselves from the Christians, the more Rome started persecuting the Christians as well because they were they were being they were uh, the Jews were saying they're not identified with us they're not they're not Jewish that was probably way too much for me to give away right at this beginning but I want to I want you to get the the um, the overall culture setting uh, the historical setting of what's going on um, there were uh, so you got you got pagan religion that uh, basically was econ- economic prosperity you know it was a necessity for economic prosperity you have the emperor cult which was uh they were forced to uh forced to sacrifice to the emperor uh, forced to worship him as lord and uh, even in some I'm, i know i shouldn't be giving this away right now because uh it'll be a little too much but they were also given when you pinched that incense and threw it into the fire it said caesar is lord they would give you a piece of paper called a libelous and that libelous was uh it allowed you to buy and sell it allowed you to engage in commerce and do business and nobody could nobody could do business or commerce nobody could get married nobody could do any kind of governmental anything without the stamp and approval of caesar and so to for a christian to say hey i'm not going to do that i'm a christian you, you get you get the feeling of what they were risking you get the feeling of what pressure they were under to uh, to compromise to to say you know what we we, we love jesus and we're only going to worship him but uh in order to survive we're going to have to do some of these things you kind of get the you kind of get the sense of what this was so asia minor <clears throat> It's going to be a hotbed of persecution and trial for early Christians from every direction. Uh, they're going to be pressured to conform to the pagan cults in order to socially survive and economically survive in the culture. They're going to be pressured by the uh, political system to include Caesar in their worship uh, and, and, you know, as good subject of the Roman Roman Empire. And they're going to be they're going to be persecuted, perhaps most fiercely by the Jewish population in each city because they believe, you know, the Christians were blaspheming their religion. And so it's in this context that Jesus is going to speak to these seven churches. He's going to commend them for the things they're doing right. He's going to rebuke them for the things that they're doing wrong. And he's going to promise the one who overcomes eternal life. And we'll talk about what overcoming means here in just a minute. So let's read verse one i'm just just going to do ephesus because i don't want to be this to be too long next week we'll do the next two churches uh verse one says to the angel of the church in ephesus write the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this so here is our first address to the angel of the church of ephesus and it's our first introduction jesus introduces himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand the one who walks among the seven seven golden lampstands and and we talked a little bit about last time about what the angels of the church means what it could mean uh but we'll go over it again as we as we look at jesus first uh, introduction uh he is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks 
among the seven lampstands. Thankfully, we don't have to we don't have to decipher these symbols at all. Uh, John has already told us what they mean. He's told us what they meant in in the first chapter that we looked at. The stars are the 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 angels, the messengers or angels, angelos of the churches. They are, you know, we talked about you can see them as divine messengers that are protecting and, and ministering the churches. Or some people think that they are the human uh, elders or pastors of the churches. Uh, either way, either way is fine with me. The point is what the point is, what he's saying is that the they're in his hand. They're in his hand. And the lampstands are, of course, the churches themselves. That's we're explicitly told that by John. Uh, he told us that in the first chapter. Chapter. And in the last chapter, we talked about the, you know, the Old Testament foundation of the lampstands and how they represent the lampstand represented the people of God uh, in the Old Testament. They were formerly united by a single lampstand with with seven branches on it, the menorah. But now in this vision, we see that they're separated They're They're seven separate lampstands. They're united by Jesus Christ who walks among them. We talked about that last week. Um, this introduction here, Jesus introducing himself as the one who holds the seven stars and the one who walks among the lampstands this introduction it should be easy for us to understand given that john's already told us you know what the pictures mean jesus is introducing himself to the church at ephesus as the king as the priest the one who walks among the lampstands the one who cares for the lampstands and the judge of the churches he is the one who he's the one who ministers to the lampstands he's the one who is directly involved in everything that goes on in the lampstands the churches uh, as you know the priests in the old testament were tasked with caring for the lampstand and that's what he is doing here he's also the one who holds the seven the seven angels the seven stars in his hand he's in control and 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 has has the right to rule is what he's saying those those servants ministers of the churches whether you see them as divine or human uh those servants of the churches uh are in his right hand they're in his hand and he has the authority to bring judgment wherever and whenever he sees fit he's the one walking among the lampstands so he knows exactly what they're doing he knows exactly what's going on and this is going to be directly relevant to the church at ephesus because they are they're very doctrinally sound. They're uh, they're good at at maintaining right doctrine, even to the point that they've rejected anything close to false doctrine. But uh, he's going to tell them that they've they have done something wrong. They've left their first love. And so Jesus is saying, "I'm the one that's walking among the lamps." Says, "I know what's I know what's happening." Uh, verses two and three. Let me read it. This is the this is the commendation. Uh, portion uh, of he's going to commend Ephesus for what they're doing. It says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they're not and you found them to be false and you have uh, perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. This is the commendation that he gives them. That's pretty good. I mean, that sounds like they really have it got they've got it going on. And really, to be honest, in this area, they do have it going on. This is the only church of the seven churches of Asia Minor that is not. Uh, 
the only church that out of the churches that are rebuked, this is the only church that is not rebuked for some sort of doctrinal error in the church. Uh, they refuse to tolerate error. Uh, the church at Ephesus is, uh, they're commended for their adherence to right doctrine. They rejected those who called themselves apostles. Uh, these, uh, these people who called themselves apostles weren't sent by God. And so here in the first century, we see that already people were coming to the churches claiming to be followers of Jesus, but teaching things that were not in accord with what Christ taught or what the apostles taught. And we're going to see, we're going to see these false teachers more and more as we continue looking into the letters of the churches. Uh, some of the other churches were not so strong in standing against those trying to corrupt them. False doctrine, regardless of how harmless it seems, it's absolutely evil. It corrupts completely. Uh, many of the other churches will be rebuked for tolerating or compromising with what they probably thought was not that big a deal. But truly, it is. And Jesus comes right out of the gate here saying that he knows their works. I know your works. I know your toil. I know your deeds. He sees their commitment to truth and their guarding of that truth uh, from those who would distort it. He commends them for their toil, for their labor uh, in defending the truth against those who tried to distort that truth. They have labored at this. They have labored and worked at this with patient endurance. He says, I see your endurance. They don't just strive for doctrinal purity once. This is this speaks of a, a continuous practice they remain faithful to the teaching that was delivered to them and they refuse to compromise with the culture around them remember we talked about the culture the pagans uh, that would say you know you can come and you can take part in this feast this is what we do this is society if you want to work here if you want to live here if you want to be part of the society here this is kind of what you have to do and there were some people in the churches we're going to see this more and more as we look at the other churches that were going you know it's not that big a deal let's just go do it we know that it's not real we know that jesus is the only god but we can go and take part of these festivals. We can go and take part of these pagan rituals and these these fellowship meals in these temples. We can we can go and 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 do these things and not have to worry about it because we know the truth. But the people in Ephesus, the church at Ephesus, refused. They refused to tolerate evil men. Jesus commends them for not tolerating evil men. This is is something we don't see much today in modern churches. Uh, church discipline is a thing of the past. Uh, unfortunately, it is. Those who would openly and rebelliously sin, uh, the people that are in the church, uh, they're called to repent in a church like the one in Ephesus. And, and if they refuse, if they refuse to repent, they're not tolerated to stay. Uh, they're placed under church discipline so that the doctrine and the practice of the church are not marred in any way. This is what the Ephesians were doing. These Ephesians would they would uh, they would not be viewed as very tolerant today. They wouldn't be viewed as very loving, but they're commended for their intolerance of evil by the Lord himself. Uh, they weren't just gullible folks either. Jesus commends them for testing 
those who say that they're apostles. This is something you don't see today much either. You know, don't judge me. That's the clarion call for the person who loves his sin and wants to incorporate worldly things into the church. Don't judge me. Uh, just any guy couldn't come off the street in Ephesus claiming to be an apostle and start teaching them. They, would, they weren't that naive. Uh, they would put these men to the test to see if God had actually sent them. Uh, they were discerning, and that's something that we don't do today. We, we should listen. When men come to teach, now if you have your pastor and you know him and he's been your pastor and he's been with you through your trials and, and all those things, you know, that's one thing. But we're talking about, you know, guys on TV, people that would come and whisper in your ear people that would come even let me say this let me say this even your pastor you should be discerning i preached a sermon not not too long ago about discernment and in that sermon i told them even the things that i say to you you even the things that i preach from this pulpit you should take that and you should be bereans and go and test it against the word of god and if what i say doesn't line up with the word of god i am mistaken I am wrong. And so you it's your responsibility to be discerning. Um, the people in Ephesus, they would put these men to the test to see if God actually sent them. Now, we're not told how they would put them to the test. But if you look over in in first John, first Thessalonians, chapter five, uh, we can see that the main way that that deceivers were tested was by examining their lives and their practice. Uh, but regardless of how they tested them, they didn't just accept those who taught differently than Christ or his apostles, or, or you know, they didn't, uh, they didn't just accept those who encouraged them to conform with society just to get along. Uh, and, and the practices that go along with that today, you're going to see all kinds of that. Well, you know, it is 2016. You can't just be the same old church. It was back in the 1950s. It's not gonna, that is, uh, that's something the Ephesians would not have tolerated now we can we can conform our methods to reach this new generation this new type of world but the message can never ever change ever it's just as intolerant as it always was it's just as exclusive as it always was there is no one that comes to the father except through christ so you can imagine you know just like paul had to deal, you know, with stuff throughout the New Testament. You know, there were Jewish men who were also entering into the churches, like a church at Antioch, and and they were encouraging the believers that they, you know, they can follow Jesus, but they got to follow the law as well. They got to be circumcised, and uh, you know, there were Gentile Christians who saw really no contradiction in professing Christ and then partaking in godless culture around them. Paul addresses them as well. You know, he says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he, he would he would uh, talk about those things. The church at Ephesus would have none of it. They would have neither. They were working hard and persevering in the doctrine which the apostles delivered to them. And it, it's pretty interesting it's interesting to me anyway. I don't know how interesting it'll be to you, but this is exactly what Paul commanded the Ephesian elders to do. In uh, in Acts chapter 20, I'm going to read to you verse 28 through 31 in Acts chapter 20. This is what Paul told the elders of the church at Ephesus. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. 
I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore, be on alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. He told them in Acts chapter 20, this church of Ephesus, he told them, do not let your guard down. You be ready. Savage wolves are coming to teach perverse things and men from your own ranks are going to rise up and try to take disciples away uh, for their own for their own. Uh, for their own pleasure. Uh, and to be honest, evidently, uh, the, the church at Ephesus had really taken Paul's instruction to heart. We see that here in this letter. Jesus is himself is commending them for not falling for false doctrine, not allowing error, not allowing conformity to come into the church. And if you want to even look, you know, 40 years later, uh, the church father named Ignatius, he wrote a letter to the Ephesians. It's Ignatius's letter to the Ephesians. You can look it up. You can read it online for free in that letter. Uh, he also praised the Ephesians for their stance against false doctrine. But, for all they were doing right, and they were doing right in this, Jesus did have something against them. In verse 4, he says, But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. You've probably heard lots of sermons about uh, people leaving their first love and what it means and all kind of things. But many people think that the Ephesians were so focused on doctrine that they were that they were waning in their love for Christ. Um, it's possible that that's the case. You know, I can't rule it out completely, but but I really see some problems with that view because earlier they're commended because they will not tolerate error and they will not tolerate it. It says for Jesus's namesake. They weren't just battling error just for the sake of battling error. They were doing it for Jesus's name. Uh, it seems it seems to me to represent a love for Christ and his truth. Uh, more likely uh, because of the fighting for right doctrine and purity of the faith. You know, they had strayed from the fundamental love that was supposed to characterize the church of Jesus for one another. They had strayed from their love for one another, and they had strayed for the love uh, of those who were outside the church, the lost, to bring them in, to evangelize them, to be to be a witness for Christ in the culture. They were so caught up with uh, right doctrine and and making sure that everything was pure that that they had they had lost their love. Uh, for one another and their love for the people they were supposed to be evangelizing. Uh, you know, today it's easy to see uh, those folks who are very careful and firm in their doctrine, uh, but don't exhibit the love that Christ engenders in the heart of his children. To be honest, I see a lot of that in myself, um, but we must we must make sure that we understand 
Jesus's commendation and his rebuke. Uh, I've heard this passage used as a bludgeoning tool against the church to say, see, you guys are just focusing on doctrine. You're not supposed to be focusing so much on doctrine. You're supposed to be loving, you know, just like the church at Ephesus. They were all about doctrine. They left the first love. He is Jesus is not chastising them for being too orthodox or being too concerned about doctrine. They were standing for right doctrine and the truth of Christ in the just the right way. Jesus commended them for what they were doing in terms of right doctrine, in truth, in fighting for truth, and in testing those who said they they were apostles. Jesus isn't saying, you guys need to focus more on love and focus less on doctrine. That is not what he is saying. He said they were doing a great job with doctrine and with fighting for the truth. But instead he says you guys are he says you guys are doing just right in fighting doctrine, but you must also include the love of Christ with it. It's not an either or proposition. You know, you focus too much on doctrine doctrine, you lose your love. You focus too much on love, you lose your doctrine. It's not either or. Both are expected. Both are required. We cannot sacrifice love on the altar of being doctrinally sound, but neither can we sacrifice right doctrine because we think loving people is just making sure we all get along. Doesn't matter who what, what we believe or what we teach. Uh, They are commended highly by Christ for not tolerating false doctrine and not tolerating those who teach it. Love here, the love that they had lost, the, the left their first love, it's not a tolerating love. Jesus commends them for being intolerant of false doctrine. Read that verse again, verses two and three. Jesus commends them for being intolerant when it comes to false doctrine and false teachers. But the love that they had lost, it's a love for each other that expresses itself in truth without becoming indifferent and cold. It's a love. They were to love doctrine, love truth, not compromise and uh, and not allow corruption to come in. But they were not to do it in such a way that they became indifferent and cold to the lives of the believers or those to whom they were evangelizing, those to whom they were supposed to be a witness in this corrupt uh, society. This love um, this love, let, let's talk about this just a second because it's very important. This love that they have left, that the Ephesians had left, it's not just a heart feeling that they need to recapture. You know, it's not just when you think of love it, today, love is just a sentimental, fuzzy feeling. You know, your heart beats fast and you get sweaty palms and you just, you know, it's that feeling of of that emotion that just rises up in you. That's not the love Jesus is talking about. The love Jesus that Jesus says they left is something that they're supposed to be doing. Get that. It's very important. Look at the next verse where, where Jesus gives them uh, the warning uh, because they have fallen away from their first love. And uh, he gives them a warning to repent. And he tells them how to remedy the situation. He he says, well, let's just read it. Verse five. They have lost their first love. They have left their first love. And so Jesus uh, rebukes them for that. And here's the warning. And he tells them what they must do now to correct the situation. Verse five says, therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds 
you did it first. Or else I'm coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. You see that? Jesus is telling them they must repent of their lack of love. And the way to fix their lack of love is not just to rekindle some flame in their heart. It's to do the works that they did at first. Notice that the remedy of their lack of love is not for them just to to have a meeting where they where they have some emotional experience. The remedy is to repent of what they've done and to begin doing the deeds that they did at first. It is to do the works of love they once did. Now, we aren't exactly told what those works that they did at first were but but if you look at the context of the letters of revelation you can probably see that the overarching command for these churches was to be a witness to christ in the midst of this pagan culture in the midst of this emperor worship in the midst of all this they were to stand for christ and not back down not give in not compromise Uh, we see this today over and over again, uh, people that, you know, have have right doctrine, believe correctly, and their love seems to wane. And we're not just talking about somebody pointing the finger at you and saying, hey, man, your love's waning. We're talking about believers who can see love waning in their heart. They can they can feel that love is, is somehow waning from them. And the remedy for that, you know, people sit around and they'll, they'll pray and they'll say, God, what's happening to me? Why am I? Why am I like this? Why can't why can't this this uh, be fixed? Why can't you do something in my life and and help me get back to that place where I was when I was first saved and I was just so excited and zealous and and, and everything was going on and and when nothing happens, you know, when something doesn't fall down in the roof, roof down through the roof to uh, to fix the problem, they usually just give up. They usually just become one of these cold, old, indifferent church people, still holding to right doctrine, still holding to the truth of Christ, still holding to the word of God, but they're just cold and indifferent, you know, going about living their own lives, doing what they want to do, making sure they're comfortable, making sure they never have to leave their comfort zone and all those kind of things. And all that does is lead further and further down the rabbit hole. Jesus says to to fix this. To fix this, the remedy for this is to remember from where you have fallen and to repent. And you take one foot, put it in front of the other, and you go and you do the first works that you did. You do the works that you did in the beginning. That's how you you recapture that love that you have left, that first love that you've left. They must repent. They were you know they were they were battling false doctrine just fine they uh you know they were doing exactly what they were supposed to do maybe maybe the ephesian church was just all about battling false doctrine uh, and had forsaken the primary call that christ had given for the church as to be his witnesses to be salt and light in the world you know that, that's just me thinking out loud uh but they the, the love that they're called to recapture has to do with action It has to do with doing the works that they did at first. So don't think that uh, you can go and recapture this love by just some emotional ecstatic experience or, or, or whatever people try nowadays. It's about doing the deeds that you did before. Jesus takes this very seriously. He is, I mean, he's perfectly happy with them fighting for truth. 
Uh, he's perfectly happy. I mean, in fact, that is exactly what they're supposed to be doing. He, they're supposed to be testing those who claim to be apostles. They're supposed to be not tolerating evil or anything that would come and, uh, and introduce leaven into the church. They are, they're called to do these things. They're doing those things, and Jesus commends them for doing those things. But they're also called to love one another as Christ has loved them. They're 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 also called to love the lost by being being a firm witness for Christ, even if it costs their lives, even if it costs them suffering or economic uh, disaster or whatever. They're called to to love the brethren. They're called to love the people to whom Jesus has sent them to. Jesus is so serious about this. I want you to really understand this. He is so serious about this. This is not a small problem. This is a huge problem. He's so serious that he tells them that they if they unless they repent and do their first works, he says, "I'm going to come to you. I'm going to come to you quickly and I'm going to remove your lampstand. I'm going to remove the lampstand from its place." You remember what the lampstand symbolizes? It's the church itself. Christ is warning them that they will either conform to his will and repent in the way that he has commanded, or he's going to remove their church. He's going to remove them from the lampstands that he walks among them. I mean, you, you can't get more serious than that. This is a big deal that he's talking about. Did you notice one other thing? Did you notice that Jesus said he is coming to them? Uh, a lot of people take that to mean at the second coming. Unless you repent at the second coming, I'm going to remove your lampstand. I don't think it can mean that. I don't think so. He's talking about coming to them in judgment. He says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. Uh, it's, uh, this is something we're going to see uh, quite a few times in Revelation. Every time Jesus uses the word coming, he isn't necessarily talking about the second coming. We saw that in uh, chapter one where he says, you, you know, they'll see him coming on the clouds. We, we saw it in Matthew where Jesus told Caiaphas, you'll see me coming on the clouds of heaven, sitting on the, at the right hand of the father. He wasn't talking about the second coming, which he will come again. And so we know that, but he was talking about being the son of man who Daniel prophesied. He says, he says, I'm going to come unless you repent and do your first works. I'm going to come to you. That's what it says. I'm going to come to you and I'm going to take your lampstand out of its place. I'm going to remove your lampstand. And so the warning of verse five is that he will either they will either repent and do their first works or Jesus will come to them in judgment and remove their church. Jesus is coming here. This is another reason why I don't think it's the second coming, because Jesus is coming here is dependent on the actions of the church. If they repent and return to their first works, the implication is that he won't come to them and remove their lampstand. He says, but if you don't repent, I am going to come to you and I'm going to remove your lampstand. Now, in fact, you can you can go today over there to Turkey and look at the ruins of the city of Ephesus. And let me ask you the question. Did Jesus indeed come to them and remove their lampstand? Did he come and remove the church at Ephesus? Ephesus is a pile of ruins today. I'll, I'll just leave that for you to judge. But as we have seen before, returning to the works of love doesn't mean does not mean diluting doctrinal purity. 
It does not mean compromising the truth of God's word. It does not mean tolerating evil. That was one of the things Jesus commended the church for, for not tolerating evil. Today, love is equated with toleration. To show love to somebody is to tolerate whatever they do. That is not love by Jesus' standards, by Scripture's standards. And Jesus reminds them again, I've said this two or three times already, but they were doing right in the area of doctrine. He's going to say it again right here in verse 6. He's going to say, yet this you do have. He's saying this is this is something you're doing right, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, it's funny. It's funny that Jesus rebuked them for their lack of love in verse 5. But then in the very next sentence, he says that they're doing good by hating the works of this group, the Nicolaitans. Uh, loving truth, loving the truth by definition means that you hate what is against the truth. So uh, catch that now. Catch that. You People will say today the church is so hateful. And if you if you say what I'm doing is wrong, you're just a hate monger and blah, blah, blah. Jesus in, in two sentences, Jesus says, I want you to you've left your first love. You need to repent and do your first works. But you do have something good going for you is that you hate the works of these guys. You hate what they're doing. And then God says, and I also hate what they're doing. Love and hate aren't mutually exclusive in some situations. For example, if you know if you love your children, you're going to hate anything that would seek to do them harm. So here God himself says that he hates the deeds of these Nicolaitans. Uh, and this isn't the first time that God says he hates something. You know, we talk about God's love and God is love and God does love. But because God loves by nature, he must hate what comes against the things that he loves. I mean, it's 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 just inevitable. If you look at Psalm 5, 5, it says you hate. It's talking about God. You hate all who do iniquity. Psalm 97, 10 says hate evil. You who love the Lord. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to hate evil. Us who love the Lord. Proverbs eight thirteen says the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth. I hate. And of course, you know, Malachi two sixteen. God says, I hate divorce. And so, you know, it, it may surprise some people today to realize that God has things that he hates and things that will bring forth his wrath. Um, but it's a fact. It's a fact. And it's a scary fact. God hates evil and he commends this church for hating the deeds of this group of people the nicolaitans so who are who are the nicolaitans who are these people um the nicolaitans that the church of ephesus hates and of course god himself said i hate their deeds as well um some people see these as followers of a man named nicholas who is mentioned in in acts chapter 6 verse 5 he was one of the he was one of the seven deacons chosen by the church along with uh stephen and some others uh, but it's said that he later apostatized from the faith and you know i guess that's possible but we we don't really have any evidence for that that's really just speculation uh there's some church fathers that say that i think Ir- irenaeus yeah i have the quote right here irenaeus said that as well uh 
in all fairness, Irenaeus was he was not that accurate about a lot of things. Uh, but in his work against heresies, he wrote the Nicola- the Nicolaitans are followers of that Nicholas who was one of the one of the seven first ordained in the diaconate by the apostles. It's talking about Acts chapter six verse five. They they lead. This is what they do. They lead lives of unrestrained indulgence teaching that it is a matter of indifference to practice adultery and to eat things that are sacrificed to idols. Now, whether this is the Nicholas John is talking about, the guy who was, you know, ordained a deacon in Acts, we can't be certain about that. But it does seem like these Nicolaitans were teaching that conformity to the pagan culture, to eat things sacrificed to idols, to engage in those feasts, to do in the temple rituals when they go to these pagan temples. They would often fornicate with temple prostitutes as a as a means of worship, uh, including all these things. It does seem that they were encouraging that this was not against uh, it was not against the uh, being a Christian. It was not against what Christ taught, and we're gonna we're gonna see later that uh, this group, the Nicolaitans, was also a problem in another church. They were a problem in Pergamum. We're gonna see that later on, uh, and in in those verses, uh, it's gonna be chapter two, verses twelve through fifteen. The church at Pergamum, the Nicolaitans are associated with the error of Balaam. Uh, and so Balaam tried to dilute Israel by introducing foreign wives among them. So you can kind of put the pieces together and show that both the Nicolaitans and those who hold to the error of Balaam, they were trying to they were trying to incorporate these pagan um, worldly uh, things into the church. And they were saying, you know what? It's not that bad. It's OK. We got to live here in the world. It's all good. We're just, you know, we're following Jesus. We can follow Jesus and still partake in in this society's uh, temple feasts and festivals and, and fornications and all, all those kind of things. They were they were uh, associated with each other in the letter to the church at Pergamum. We're going to see that the Nicolaitans and the people who hold to the Aram of era of Balaam were basically doing the same thing. And we'll talk about that when we get to Pergamum. But it does seem that the Nicolaitans taught that some bending of the cultural idolatry uh, in Ephesus was justified. You know, the economy in Ephesus thrived on the temple cults, on the Caesar worship. Uh, you know, it also it's also interesting to note that the other names, if you take the name Nicholas and and Balaam, this is the two heresies that we're going to see throughout these letters of the churches. Of course, we're going to see Jezebel as well. But Nicholas and Balaam uh, mean the same thing in their respective languages. It means conqueror of the people. Nicholas, remember the word Nikao, which means to conquer. That's where Nike gets its logo. Nike means conquer. And so that's what they named their shoe after. Nicholas means conqueror of the people in Greek. And Balaam means conqueror of the people in Hebrew. And so what there's a connection there that John's drawing, but there's also in part when we get to Pergamum, we're going to see that there's a connection in the same thing that they were teaching. So it seems like John is referring to the same kind of heresy. And the heresy is this. It's okay to conform. It's okay to 
it's okay to allow some elements of of worldliness to come in. It's okay to take part in the the pagan ugliness of society because this is where we live and we can still be Christians and we can still hold fast to these things without having to, you know, without having to uh, separate ourselves from the pagan temples and the worship of Caesar and all, all those kind of things. We can do both. And the church at Ephesus rejected it. They refused it. Jesus here commends them. He says, he says, you have this for you. This is something you're doing good. You hate, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And God says, and I hate them too. I hate those things. So the Ephesians fought against temptation and teaching to conform to the culture, indulge in idolatry, all those kind of things. But we got to remember that these teachers weren't just they weren't just coming out full blown saying, hey, guys, reject Jesus. Don't worry about all that stuff. Just worship these other gods. It's all good. They were saying, hey, it's OK to take part in these pagan festivals. We know that's only one God. It won't hurt to go ahead and sacrifice to Caesar. I mean, that's what Rome expects and demands. And, you know, there are rulers. We, we, we need to go on and obey them. Uh, things will just go better if you do this. The temptation was to conform to the culture rather than being a witness for Jesus standing against the culture. Uh, we're going to explore these temple cults and emperor worship in the other churches in more depth. But the point here is that the is that the Ephesians were holding their own and were commended by Jesus for not giving in to the pressure to compromise. the The problem was they were they were lacking in their love. They weren't doing the deeds that they had done at first and so finally last thing last thing jesus says to the church in ephesus is in verse 7 it says he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches we're going to see that sentence in every single letter to the churches uh and it says to him who overcomes incidentally this word overcomer it also is from the word nikao which means conqueror which means victor the one who conquers, the one who overcomes, he says to that one, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The exhortation, of course, to the one who has an ear, let him hear. You know, that's something we're going to see in every one of the letters. Uh, remember that the words to the churches are spoken by Jesus Christ. And it is it's um, it's also said that there they are to hear what the spirit says to the churches did you notice that the words here uh some of your bibles may be written in red because it is jesus who is speaking but it says him who has near let him hear what the spirit says to the churches so even right here you see the unity of the son and the spirit as they minister to the churches as they as they deal commendation and rebuke to the churches the ones who have been spiritually awakened by salvation the new heart they they must hear what the spirit has said they must keep and obey what the spirit has said uh this is akin to saying that they must obey you need to obey what has been spoken here uh these are not just suggestions or good ideas these are the words of the son of man the one who was prophesied in the old testament the king the priest the judge the one who is uh the the disciple of christ uh, having been made righteous by his blood must heed what the king is saying here but not just those in ephesus and all the churches the one who has an ear he says must hear what the spirit is saying to the church is plural and finally <clears throat> 
This letter ends, just like all the other letters are going to end, with a promise of eternal life. Uh, we're going to see this phrase differently in each one of the seven letters. Uh, the promise of eternal life here is taken from Genesis. Uh, of course, it doesn't take much brain power to realize that the tree of life. Jesus says the one who overcomes, the one who conquers, will be granted to eat of the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. Uh, of course, you probably, you, surely you know that story. That's the picture, Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve lived, paradise of God. In Genesis 2 and 3, the tree of life symbolized eternity in the presence of God. It symbolized that, but don't take my meaning. Don't think that I don't believe that there really was a tree of life and there really was an Adam and Eve, because I definitely do. I take it. I take that to mean that it was just like it says, there was a garden. There was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was a tree. And so I take that to mean exactly what it says. But the tree symbolized uh, eternity in the presence of God perfect fellowship with the with God to eat of the tree is to be permanently accepted in his presence after after Adam and Eve fell they were exiled from the garden and the reason God gives to, for their exile was because God didn't want them to eat of the tree of life and live forever in that fallen state they would live forever in that sinful state Genesis 3 uh, verses 22 and 23 says then the Lord God said behold the man has become like one of us knowing good and evil and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. But this is what the whole of creation is moving toward. Uh, it, it, it's the culmination of everything that the Bible speaks of. It begins in the paradise of God with the tree of life in the center of the paradise of God. And the book of Revelation is going to end in the paradise of God with the tree of life in the paradise of God. And everything in between is God's salvation history moving mankind back into right relationship with him through the death and the resurrection of his son. Uh, If you read Revelation 22 verses 1 and 2, it says, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And then it says in verse 2, in the middle of its street on either side of the river was what? The tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so this is a promise of eternal life. It's a promise of what is to come in Revelation. The one who overcomes is going to be granted to eat of the tree of life, live forever in the presence of God. And and, and we're going to see this promise spoken about in different images in every one of the letters. He's going to rephrase it, use different things, different images to show us this eternal life but he's going to do it in every single letter but it's always a promise of eternal life we 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 would do well to remember that because we're going to need to understand it when we see start seeing some of the images that that cause a little confusion among among some people so the last question we're going to answer who are these conquerors who are the ones who conquer jesus says to the one who conquers to the one who overcomes i will i will grant him to the eat of the tree of life i'll give him eternal life does that mean that there's some kind of special believer you know does it mean they're super christians does it mean that you know we have to do some form of work in order to earn this eternal life um you know as we said before the word conqueror overcomer it's the word nikao and it and and it what's from the word nikao and it and it means it means um 
it's the idea of the conqueror. It, it reminds us in the book of Revelation that there's a there's a battle being fought. Living as a believer in the midst of a corrupt world, determined to persecute the church, determined to remove the church out of existence, or to force them to conform, to force them to tolerate their wickedness. This is the war. The overcomers are not some super Christians who do extra works in order to you know add to their faith in Christ. They are the ones who are faithful to Christ. Despite persecution, despite temptation, despite the pressure uh, from the world, uh, all Christians, all true believers who have been born again, who have been saved irrevocably by the blood of Christ, all believers who have uh, who've been changed, who have become new creatures are overcomers. Uh, in First John 5, 4, it says, this is John, the same writer who wrote Revelation. He says, whatever is born of God overcomes the world the one who is born of god overcomes the world same word and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith first john 5 4 the christians spoken of in revelation overcame overcame the devil uh they they overcame because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony that's going to be in revelation uh, chapter 5 so the question here it's not about it's not about are they going to experience victory or are they going to experience defeat the question is are they going to experience victory or are they going to commit treason because to hold fast to Jesus as a faithful witness in the midst of this culture is to be victorious that is to conquer because christ has already won the battle so what we have in this letter to sum up uh the church of ephesus it's structurally the same as we're going to see in the other six churches uh of course the message to each church is going to be a little different um each of the churches are characteristically different uh they have you know some things that are commended by jesus some things that are rebuked by jesus but we're going to see the same structure of the letter throughout you're going to have the audience to the to the angel of the church of whatever you're going to have the introduction of jesus using the symbols that we saw in chapter one uh you're going to have a condemnation or rebuke of the church but depending on who they are and what they're doing and each letter is going to have an exhortation for the one who hears uh he needs to he needs to hear one who has ears needs to hear what the spirit says to the churches and then each letter is going to end with a promise of eternal life for the one who overcomes for the one who stands fast as a witness for christ now remember 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 that it is important to understand the parallel structure of these letters so we have a framework now that we've built for deciphering some of the other symbols that we're going to see they're a little difficult in in the other in the other letters and also remembers remember that um the the letters to each of the churches are giving us a background to the visions that we're going to see in the rest of the book of Revelation. This book was written to these Christians in the first century, going through trial, uncertainty in Asia Minor, facing things you and I couldn't even fathom. So you can't divide the book by starting at chapter four, uh, where the visions start, and say, you know, that only the first three chapters have relevant revel- uh, relevance to the the people to whom the book was written and from chapter four on it's for it's for some end time futuristic generation the first two lessons we did on chapter one 
they were really long. They were over an hour. I, I don't know how long it's been. This might this one might have been over an hour too. Uh, I want to cut down the time of each of these lessons. So we're going to do two churches. We're going to do two churches at a time. I'm going to end this one here, and I'm going to go over two churches next time, two churches the time after that. And I really want to dig deep and look into what was going on in those churches. Now, when I said that, so that's three lessons before we're going to get to chapter four. When I said that, if you thought, oh, man, I wish you'd just hurry up and get to the visions of the monsters and all that, I think you're already missing the point of trying to understand what this book is saying. These letters to the churches are important for understanding the vision that come next that's why they come first in the book jesus didn't just come out of the gate telling us about dragons and women's wings and all that kind of stuff he started by the revelation of who he is son of man from the old testament then he goes into great detail to make sure these seven churches know that he is among them and he is aware of their situations and he understands everything that's going on he commends them and rebukes them it's only after we dig deep into the character and circumstances of these churches that we can see what Jesus is revealing about what is about to happen and inevitably about the coming of the end. Um, One other thing, I have been intentionally vague about my position. We talked about the different ways to interpret Revelation in the very beginning. I've been intentionally vague about my own position in the book, Revelation, a denental purpose, what the symbols are pointing to and all that kind of stuff. Um, But as I'm preparing these outlines on each chapter, um. I'm doing it with serious effort in the hopes that I'm going to lay it all out in a way that you really can understand and finally shed some light on uh, not only how to interpret the book, but how I arrived at my interpretation, how I, the evidence that, that is together so you can have a, a framework to how you do your Bible study. Um, and I've come to the conclusion that before we go into chapter four, which begins the drama of the visionary portion, I'm going to have to spell out what I think Revelation is teaching us and give the evidence for my position. Uh, I was hoping to just kind of give it to you a little here, a little there as we went through the different sections, but I don't think that's going to help you in understanding what Christ is trying to say in the book. So we will do that after we finish the letters to the churches and before we look at the vision uh, of God's throne room. And as always, if you have any questions or you want clarification on something, you can get in touch with me through the website, jasonvalada.com. Um, and uh, I will see you next time. We'll talk about the next two. We'll talk about the next two uh, churches.